Okay, um, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna attempt to do irresponsibly too much in this, so I'm just gonna tear right into it. Um, consider the podium uh, at, from which I'm speaking. It is no doubt a composition of material parts, boards, screws, bits of glue. Nothing, however, uh, that no, no, notice, however, that this podium is not identical to that collection of, of material parts. Though the podium is located in the very same place as that collection, and touching it would involve touching that collection, or at least some subset of that collection, they are not the very same thing. I realize that this is an odd claim when whispered in the ear of the person on the street. What else would a desk be or a podium be but just the collection of boards, screws, screws, glue, bits of glue, etc., that compose it? Uh, it, it is not as silly as it first sounds. If two things are identical, then they must persist under the very same conditions. If Jim Madden and the person uh, who's giving you this lecture are one and the same being, then there had better not be conditions under which one of them comes to be or passes away uh, without the other one doing the same. If they, if they uh, could exist separately, then they just are not the very same thing assuming we are using the relevant terms in the appropriate manner. Now, if we smash this, this podium with a sledgehammer, such that we are left only with a pile of broken boards and screws, we would likely conclude that the, the podium has passed away, while the parts have clearly persisted in some sense. That is, the very same collection of parts can exist as composing a desk as it does now, or a podium, pardon me, it was a desk when I wrote this, uh, or not composing a desk uh, after we have smashed the desk to bits. Thus, there is what we call a synchronic unity that is lacked by the mere occurrence of the collection of its parts. That is, the desk is right now a unified whole that is distinct from its parts. Moreover, if we replace just one screw in the desk, we would not feel as though we had destroyed the rightful property of Auburn University. Indeed, uh, if we did so incrementally, we might even change out every piece of this desk without ever having a sense of losing the original item. Thus, whereas we saw earlier that the parts exist without the desk, or they could, we can see that the desk can exist without this particular set of parts, or even any member of that set of parts supposing they are replaced in the, the right incremental manner. The desk has what we call then a diachronic unity over and above the collection of its parts. Notice that the desk uh, enjoys, at least for our ordinary common sense, a sort of ontological priority over its parts. If you ask me to count the objects in this room, and I stopped and counted each part of the desk but not the desk, or I counted the parts and the desk separately, you would find my sorting pretty odd. Rather, we would only expect to count the desk and other so-called middle-sized dried goods. The most important fact is the being of the desk, not its parts. In other words, the desk occupies a more prominent place in our ontology or, or our accounting of things than its parts. A reason for this is the explanatory priority the desk enjoys with respect to its parts. The proper characterization of something as a desk foot or a desk drawer is parasitic upon its being properly characterized as an actual or possible part of a desk. The nature of a desk drawer is derivative from the nature of desks, and the reciprocal is not the case. That is, we do not specify what counts as a desk in terms of what counts as a drawer, but we do specify what counts as a desk drawer in terms of what counts as a desk. The notion that these curious facts about the desk can be generalized so as to apply to all material objects is the ancient Aristotelian doctrine of hylomorphism. The hylomorphist claims that all material objects, at least those that can be divided into parts, are composed of matter, a set of parts that have a potency to compose an object of that kind, but maybe other kinds of objects too, and an additional principle of unity called the form that accounts for the actuality of such a composition. Notice that the form is not a part in the same sense as the items we find in the matter. We might think of the form as what answers to a definition of the object that limits the loss, gain, or rearrangement of its constituents 
inasmuch as the object will retain its identity as a certain kind of thing. Aristotle takes the form not merely as the definition of an object, but as that in the thing that most importantly corresponds to the definition. The definition of the object is the statement of its form, as Aristotle sometimes puts it, but the form is not a statement. The form is what grounds the definition. Hylomorphism entails an extra-linguistic ontological commitment. Something is the form of a unified, complex object. Certainly there's a sense in which the matter, the composing parts, ground the definition. There are limits to the materials that can be used to make a desk, such that we might include some material specification in the definition. Nevertheless, as Aristotle famously argues in the physics, quote, in fact, the form is more nature than the matter is. For each thing is said to be when it is actually when it actually is more than when it potentially is. End quote. That is, the definition of desk does not apply to a pile of sawdust left after the destruction of a desk. Not least of all, because the very same pile of sawdust is just as much potentially a wood carving of Abraham Lincoln as it is a desk. Thus, matter is a necessary condition for a desk but is not what makes the difference between what is merely a potential desk and what actually is a desk. What then is the form, right, if it is not the matter? What answers to the definition of the desk such that its parts compose a unified object rather than an aggregate of potential parts for such an object? Certainly, the causal history leading up to the occurrence of a desk as a unified whole is part of that story, but what counts for a desk-making process? Likely, it is a process leading to an occurrence of a piece of furniture, suitable for the execution of certain activities. Writing philosophy papers, storing files, discussing issues with clients, etc., etc. Anything at the ready to serve such tasks can plausibly be thought of as a desk. There's a broad sense in which a pile of sawdust has potential for such activities. That is, sawdust could be formed such that it is ready to serve in desk ways. But a desk is something currently suitable uh, to these ends without further change. The point is that the form of the desk is a direct disposition, what I like to call the being able, that must be present in order for those parts to perform the function of a desk. It is the being poised to perform that Aristotelians are referring to with talk of the form of an object. The form of the desk is not a discrete part, but a ready potency, what Aristotle calls a first actuality, more on that later, that parts come to have in virtue of their composing a whole. The Aristotelian notion of form is subsequently closely linked to teleology or purpose. Certainly we can think of the form of the desk as an arrangement of parts, or more likely uh, a broad range of such possible arrangements, that constitutes its aggregate as, a matter, as the matter of a desk, but that arrangement will always be an arrangement for something. What counts as a desk? A set of material, materially appropriate constituents arranged so as to enable certain activities. This is why Aristotle sees such an intimate relationship between a form and what he calls a final cause or purpose of an object. The form of an object is the direct ability to or enablement for engaging in activities that are definitive of a certain kind of thing. A form is not a material part of something, but a readiness to do what such a thing is supposed to do as a member of its essential kind. As I said above, the Hylomorphus claims that this account in terms of form and matter composition can be generalized to cover all material objects. This generalization includes not just artifacts such as desks or podiums, but living beings too. Take a cat, let's call him Fluffy. Is Fluffy identical to his material parts? No more than the desk. The fact that Fluffy could have all order of unfortunate accidents that would leave us with a complete collection of unassembled cat parts while sans cat shows that Fluffy has a synchronic unity distinct from his parts. Moreover, the fact that Fluffy is constantly exchanging matter with his environment throughout his entire lifespan shows that he has a diachronic unity distinct from his aggregated parts at any one moment. Like the desk, Fluffy also has an ontological precedent over his parts. Above the molecular level, at least, Fluffy's parts have no stability of their own once separated from Fluffy. The organs, tissues, cells, etc. that compose Fluffy will die and decompose once they are separated from Fluffy, at least 
in natural conditions. The being of these parts presupposes the completed whole of the cat or some outside causality to keep them alive artificially. If we ask why livers, muscle cells, etc., exist, it will be very difficult to answer such questions without appeal to the whole organism to which they belong. These parts exist in order to serve the existence of the organism they compose. And when separated from a living substance, they immediately begin to decompose. Even at the molecular, atomic, or subatomic level, we cannot explain to any great level of satisfaction why they are assembled in the way they are without appealing to the functional role they play in the living organism, though they can exist outside such a composition. In this light, we can see Fluffy as enjoying an explanatory and ontological precedent over his parts. We then account for Fluffy's unity in terms of a form and matter uh, for reasons similar to those that led us to do the same and to led us to the same conclusion with respect to artifacts such as the desk. Notice, however, that the case is even stronger for Fluffy than for the desk. Though the desk enjoys a sort of precedent over its parts, there is also a sense in which nothing really novel comes into existence with the coming to be of the first desk. The desk has no capacities that are not straightforwardly capacities of the solidity of the wood composing it. One could rest his books on a stack of wood in a pinch. Becoming a desk is a refinement of wood, but it is really just another accidental way of being wood. Fluffy, however, engages in activities and has powers that are unprecedented among the powers of his parts. Cats, along with all living things, undergo changes and develop capacities that are utterly novel compared to their parts at all levels of analysis. The desk, ultimately, is just decomposing wood. It goes through no changes that are different from the ordinary changes of the sawdust composing it. But Fluffy does his own thing, as it were. That is not to say that there is some mystery as to how cat cat components give rise to cat powers, but they do amount to something new under the sun. For this reason, we might say that the coming to be of a cat is the occurrence of a new substance, not merely an accident of its parts. This distinction between a substantial being and an accidental being for Aristotle depends crucially on the fact that the former and not the latter has, quoting Aristotle, within itself a starting point of movement in being at rest, unquote. That is, the distinctive conditions for synchronic and diachronic unity that make for a desk are all imposed by external agencies, whereas the distinctive continuity of a cat is something it possesses to some significant degree independent of any external agency. Thus, Aristotelians have long held that a living thing is a composite, not just of a form uh, and matter, but of what they call a soul and matter. Here, all that is meant by soul is the form of a living thing the distinctive being able that marks the difference between its composing matter and the living substance that is so composed. Aristotle most famously puts it as thus, quote, the soul is the first actualization of a natural body that has life potentially, end quote. That is, the soul is the ready potency of an organism that marks it as, a dis as distinct from its composing parts. The soul is not a separate life force or spirit that actualizes or otherwise acts on the matter as a distinct external particular. Rather, the soul is the life of the organism in the sense that, quote, it is the actualization of such a body, end quote. It is the being able that must be maintained in order to distinguish the living organism from either a dead or former member of that species or a mere aggregate of beings with unactualized potential to be such an organism. Like any other form, the soul does not do the actualizing of the body, that's the work of an external cause, but is the actualization of the living body. To be a living body of a certain kind is to have at the ready a certain being able, a readiness to perform the activities characteristic of that sort of thing. Consider the two following analogies Aristotle uses in his own explication of the notion of soul. So, quoting Aristotle. It is just like this. If an instrument, for example, an axe, were a natural body, its substance would, would be the being for the axe, and this would be its soul. For if the eye were an animal, sight would be its soul, for that is the substance of an eye, the one in accord with the account. The eye is matter for sight, 
and, and if this fails, it is no longer an I. As then are cutting and seeing, so too is being awake in actuality, and as our sight and the capacity of the instrument, so is the soul, whereas the body is what is potentially alive. But just as the eye jelly and sight are an eye, uh, so in the case of the soul, the soul and the body are an animal, end quote. Following the analogy, the soul of the eye would be sight, and the soul of an axe would be its suitability for chopping. By sight, we do not mean actually seeing something. A closed eye is still an eye, uh, any more than suitability for chopping entails actually chopping. Sight, rather, is the being able to see that we only find in a living eye, as opposed to a decomposing set of eye parts detached from an organism, what Aristotle calls eye jelly. Being able to see is the actuality of being an eye, and it has ontological and explanatory precedent over parts of the eye. They exist and are what they are because of their role in the function of the eye. Leaving aside the analogy, eyes are not living substances, and parts of living, but parts of living substances and axes are soulless artifacts, Aristotle would say that the soul of a cat is its being poised to engage in cat actions that distinguishes Fluffy from his composing parts, and other kinds of things those parts at finer levels of composition might have composed. Actually being a cat is to be able to perform distinctively feline activities. Certainly this also requires having distinctively feline parts, fur, a tail, claws, right, certain molecules, but all those parts are ordered to the definitive activities of cat kind. So the actualization of a cat is just such a readiness. Uh, which is what Aristotle means by the soul of a cat. Notice, too, that being able is dispositional. Being a cat is not a matter of actually performing the distinctively cat activities, but to have a disp disposition towards those activities that is lacked by non-cats, even if some individual cat never exercises such a disposition. Merely having the requisite soul is sufficient for being an organism of a certain kind, but notice that the soul, though it is a first actuality, is likely, likewise a potency for a certain kind of activity. Anything with a determinate disposition for definitively feline activities, whatever its stage of development, is a cat. Aristotle, however, maintains that something exists to the degree that it, act, it is actually not mixed with potency. Being X is not potentially being X, but actually being X. All of an organism's activities taken in isolation are fleeting moments, giving way to yet more fleeting moments. Each activity results in yet another uh, actuality mixed with potency for change. However magnificent Fluffy might be in any given distinctively cat-like exercise of his mouse hunting capacity, that will only set him up for another movement of some sort. The organism comes to be unconditionally, or as actual being, as Aristotle puts it, in the fullest sense, inasmuch as it, as it finally brings its essential activity to completion. Since all of its particular doings are somehow incomplete, Aristotle concludes that the organism is only fully actualized at, inasmuch as it lives a certain kind of life as a complete action. Each act, even though definitive of that kind of organism, is a fleeting moment, whereas living a certain type of life, flourishing, is an end in itself and possibly stable throughout an organism's entire lifespan. Fluffy's soul is, not, is, is ultimately not merely a disposition to pull off a particular act of cat hunting or cat reproduction, but to live a life full of these activities. The soul, then, is the readiness to follow a certain way of life that is desirable for its own sake for a certain kind of organism. And that point of flourishing is determinative of the soul for that kind of organism. In other words, for Aristotle, the soul is ultimately a ready tendency towards a distinctive type of happiness or flourishing that counts as the fullest being of that kind of thing played out over its entire life history. Thus, the Aristotelian hylomorphus sees nature as rich with souls. All living things are compounds of souls and material parts. That is no trivial claim. Hylomorphism uh, of this sort, and there are other versions, has profound philosophical implications, as it rules out any kind of strict reduction of organisms to their constituents. Organisms are not just collections, ultimately, of subatomic particles, 
Rather, nature is suffused with the emergent entities, living things, which cannot be understood solely in terms of their constituents, but, but must be seen in light of their definitive ready disposition toward a certain kind of life, that is, their souls. In fact, Aristotle himself thought that the soul is the object of proper scientific study, at least for the life sciences. The distinctive being able of kinds of living things is what the biologist is ultimately out to understand and to explain. At the same time, you must be careful not to make too much of all this talk of souls. In fact, I often wish we had a different word. When we hear soul today, we think of ghosts, substantial minds, our truest selves, angels, etc. That is, we think of a soul as a kind of substance that interacts with the body in a way a virus is a substance that interacts with an organism. Notice, however, that the hylomorphous means no such thing by soul. The soul is not a substance, but the definitive being able of the substance. We also tend to use the word soul in ways that primarily associate it with consciousness or otherwise psychological attributes. The soul is supposedly a thinking sub, sub pardon me. The soul is supposedly a thinking substance in the modern view, or the bearer of my psychological as opposed to my merely physical properties. Notice, however, that, that the Aristotelian path to the soul does not run through consciousness or the mental at all. Aristotle does not introduce the notion of a soul to account for thinking things, but living things in general, some of which happen to be thinkers. The soul is posited to solve problems about the identity and unity of complex living things, and there are plenty of non-conscious things that have souls in Aristotle's thought. When the Aristotelian claims that even plants have souls, uh, that is not because she believes that there are ghosts or minds inhabiting the trees. It is just to say that there is a definitive being able of the tree that marks it as something over and above the aggregate of its parts. I belabor this point so as to disabuse you of the common tendency to think of hylomorphism as a sort of substance dualism. The soul and the organism are not separate individuated substances. Rather, the former is the actuality of the latter. And as Aristotle puts it, quote, we should not inquire whether the soul and the body are one, for since one and being are said of things in many ways, the controlling way is actuality." End quote. Of course, in some living things, the definitive being able is a realized capacity for certain conscious or psychological activities. And the complete life of such organisms will include the exercise of such psychological capacities. But the being of a cat is being poised to hunt certain types, pardon me, part of the being of a cat is being poised to hunt certain types of prey, to respond to threats in certain ways, to pursue particular types of mates in a particular manner. And all of these definitive feline activities are hard to envision without the cat being conscious. Thus, Fluffy's soul is in part a being able to engage in particularly conscious uh, feline activities. This is not at all to say that Fluffy's soul engages in consciousness. Rather, it is Fluffy that engages in these distinctively feline activities that are conscious activities. Fluffy's soul is, in part, the being able to engage in such activity, but it is Fluffy as a biological whole that so engages. Or at least, uh, or at the very least, hylomorphism is consistent with such a view of, of consciousness. Finally, hylomorphism extends the account, its account to human beings. That is, a human being is not identical to the aggregate of her parts, because she possesses a synchronic and diachronic unity distinct from those parts, and she enjoys an ontological and explanatory precedent over those parts, just like Fluffy. Moreover, since a human being is a living thing, a substance novel as compared to its parts, uh, it is a composite of matter and a special sort of form Aristotle calls soul. Notice, however, that none of this is to say anything particularly interesting about human beings as such, but simply to include human beings in a generalized Aristotelian account of living things. There is nothing special, according to Aristotle, about our having souls, but that does not answer the question of whether there's anything special about the souls we have. The soul is the being able for the activities definitive of a certain kind of living thing. Thus, distinctiveness of the soul of a certain kind is really a question of whether such a thing is capable of engaging activities that distinguish it from all other living beings. Is there anything unique about the human soul? Well, that question can only be answered by first querying whether there is a definitive human activity. Philosophers in the Aristotelian tradition have standardly defined humankind as rational animal. There is no need to dispute that uh, other animals have cognitive capacities. 
or at least the rudiments thereof. We are all aware of stock examples of, anim of non-human animals, figuring things out, making decisions, solving problems in novel ways, and operating according to concepts in some sense. These interpretations of non-human animal behavior are useful uh, predictive stances, but also get something right about animal psychology. Animals do things that make good sense. But as I will argue, we are distinct from them because we do things because they make good sense. Suppose Fluffy engages in, a certain in certain stable patterns of behavior that make sense as interfaces with the world. These are clearly not accidents on Fluffy's part. Furthermore, suppose Fluffy can refine or adjust those behavioral patterns uh, to fit in indefinitely many specific circumstances. In such cases, we then have every reason to think of Fluffy's behavior as rational, as we do in the case of human beings who engage in stable, yet indefinitely adjustable manners of dealing with the world. I suspect ordinary feline hunting behaviors fit this bill rather well. It is perfectly natural to say that Fluffy knows how to hunt a rat, and that Fluffy was clever in hunting that rat in particular. I take it that this, is, that this interplay between generality and flexibility within a rubric is the very mark of a kind of rationality. I find it then irresistible to say that Fluffy's hunting is somehow rational. In other words, I'm quite comfortable saying that Fluffy understands how to hunt a rat, or that Fluffy has reasons for why he stalked the way he did. Because Fluffy can work between the relevant generalities and particularities in a way that competently interacts with the world. Notice, however, that the conceptual or rational status of Fluffy's behavior plays no role in the motivational structures leading to Fluffy's hunting strategy on any particular day. Those, though Fluffy's behavior is rational, it is not rational to Fluffy. The rationality of the behavior does not occur to Fluffy, and subsequently Fluffy does not engage in such behavior because it is rational. Although we might say that Fluffy's distinctively feline being able involves his being capable of doing what makes reasonable sense, both in the general and the particular, for a cat, Fluffy is not motivated by his activity's rational status. That is all to say that, though Fluffy's behavior is implicitly rational, we have no reason to conclude uh, that this fact is something explicit to Fluffy. Some philosophers put it like this. Fluffy's behavior, though it makes, a per makes perfectly good sense to interpret it as rational in some broad sense, is not explicitly normative. Fluffy does not engage in his particular hunting behavior on any given day because it conforms to a norm of rationality. Fluffy's hunting is the right thing to do, but he does not do, that, do it that way because it is the right thing to do. The fact that it conforms to such norms is irrelevant to the cat. The feline uh, psychological repertoire is utterly devoid of any second-order notions that allow normative considerations to occur. Fluffy's attention is solely fixed on the particularities of the hunt, and the rational status of his activity is not borne by his conscious deliberations. Rather, Fluffy's rationality is carried by his entire bodily comportment as an animal aimed at making sense, acting towards flourishing in an environment. One might say Fluffy is rational, but he's not logical in the sense that Fluffy's behavior initiates or conforms to, normal, to rational norms, for example, the standard of good hunting for a feline kind, but those norms are not topically explicit to Fluffy. He doesn't bring them up to himself. He does not make these norms of felinity uh, explicit so that he can use them to guide, evaluate, or improve his behavior. Technically, though, we might say that Fluffy engages in rational behaviors. There is no need thereby to ascribe a particular logical content to his thinking, because Fluffy is not thinking about the rational status of his behaviors. There is no discrete mental state or what have you that carries Fluffy's rationality. Uh, rather, Fluffy's rationality is just his way of being a cat in some particular situation. When we say that Fluffy understands how to hunt rats, we're not ascribing a special sort of psychological predicate to Fluffy. Rather, we are just identifying a distinctively feline bodily comportment present in Fluffy that makes sense in his environment. This is a rational comportment and one subject to on-the-spot adjustments, novel problem solving and all that, but it is bodily all the way down, as it were. That is, Fluffy's ability to engage in, in responsibly sensitive rat hunting uh, as a contribution to cat flourishing does not require our positing anything more on the part of Fluffy than the ordinary conscious states required by the fact that cats register 
uh, the presence of mice, dogs, water, potential mates, or what have you. And I'm happy to agree that that sort of consciousness can be accommodated by broad-minded versions of naturalism. There is no reason to think there is anything interestingly non-physical or immaterial about such creatures, how interesting, however interesting these creatures are in the exercise of their capacities. Fluffy's rationality is an instantiated conceptuality, the embodiment of implicit reasons for acting. Fluffy doesn't hold those reasons, though in a sense he is those reasons. Being a cat just is being able to act accord with such reasons. We should be careful here with what is meant by embodied or bodily comportment. I do not mean that Fluffy's reasons for acting can be identified with or otherwise reduced to discrete events or processes within his nervous system. Fluffy's rationality is identifiable with neither a discrete physical occurrence nor a discrete mental occurrence because it is not a discrete occurrence at all. Rather, Fluffy's rationality is something that supervenes on a complicated relation among particular organisms, a cat and a rat serving as his prey, the interactions between the evolutionary histories of those species, the contingent circumstances of their current environment and individual histories, etc., etc. Put together, all of these factors serve to make sense of what Fluffy is doing, but the rational status is had by no one contributor to the state of affairs. It is an attribute borne by the whole, but none of its parts. We might say that the rationality of Fluffy's hunting behavior is an identifiably complex relationship uh, with an entire world around which he knows his way, though that knowing is only implicit to the global circumstance. Fluffy might be said to think, but he does not think about his thinking. Is the hylomorphist then a materialist when it comes to cats and their seemingly rational behavior? Allow me a, a philosopher's proverbial yes and no. The yes comes in as much as hylomorphism does not think any sort of immaterial substance need be added to Fluffy's physiology to account for his instantiation of rational behavior. Fluffy is a material being. The no comes because Fluffy's rationality is not physically identifiable. We cannot pinpoint out a single physical event, process, occurrence, etc., that is Fluffy's rationality. Thus, if you mean by materialism the claim that everything is material, then mere hylomorphists are not materialists because they grant that there are things, uh, for example, Fluffy's knowing how to catch a rat uh, currently in his view, that are not identifiable as material things. That, however, is not to commit one oneself to the claim that Fluffy's knowing his way around is identified with some immaterial entity. One can say that there is no discrete physical organ for cognition while denying that there is a discrete non-physical organ for cognition, so long as one is also claiming that cognition is not the sort of thing carried by a discrete organ. To say that Fluffy knows how to hunt is not to identify a particular process or event in Fluffy's nervous system or mind, but to say that Fluffy participates in a world in a way that makes sense for a cat to do so. Okay. The human case is more complicated in some important respects, but not in all ways. Of course, just like Fluffy and all living things, the vast majority of our behaviors are not explicitly but only implicitly rational. That is, we mostly get around the world unreflectively doing the human thing, uh, mediating between the st stable patterns of our practical activities that have perennially served our kind well and the particular circumstances in which we apply them, with all without doing much thinking. In this sense, humans, just like cats, are expressions of a rationality that supervenes on the material world in which they dwell. Though our manner of adjustment and the range of objects to which we can so adjust differs from Fluffy's, we are less attuned to smells, but we have recourse to opposed thumbs and upright posture. These powers are in no way ontologically foreign to those uh, we find suffused throughout the kingdom of living things. We are in this way just another species of animals being in the natural world, and I see no need to posit anything immaterial in humans or any other animal uh, that, that accounts for this being. The complicating factor is the fact that, unlike Fluffy, we, do not own, we are not only expressions of rational order, but we are also logical. As Robert Brandom puts it, we do not just behave in ways that conform to norms or concepts. We are also, quote, concept mongerers, as he puts it, unquote. Not only can our behaviors be interpreted in logical categories and properly fall under those logical categories, we are logical interpreters of those behaviors. The rationality of our activities is part of the motivating structure that explains them, at least hopefully some of the time. 
That is, human beings not only do what makes sense, but we can do what makes sense because it is what makes sense. The fact that a certain activity is the right thing to do is in some, situation, in some situations is part of the reason why a human being endeavors to do it. Surely it is plausible to say Fluffy knew uh, that was the best way to hunt a rat. But only in the human case can we say Smitty caught the rat that way because he knew that was the best way to do it. The normative status of the activity is a relevant category of explanation for Smitty, though not for Fluffy, uh, even when their activities are guided by similar ends and happen to conform to similar norms. Only in the human case does the normative conformity explain something. In order for the rationality of an action to play a role in the explanation of Smitty's performance, its normative status must be something that Smitty can make explicit to himself. That is, Smitty must not only be able to engage in behaviors that implicitly instantiate concepts, but he must further be able to call to mind or otherwise grasp the relevant concepts. The conceptual content must have some bearing on what he did. Human rationality entails a power to assume a second-order stance towards our doing. We are able to ask ourselves which norms or concepts our behaviors or possible behaviors do or do not conform to, rather than merely performing behaviors that do or do not so conform. That is not to say that every action of Smitty's, or even any of his actions, are direct products of explicit conceptual analysis and normative evaluation of the alternatives. Rather, it, really, it merely entails that it makes sense to ask Smitty, what were you doing? Or why did you do that? In a way, it does not make sense to ask that of non-human animals, such as cats. Because only human beings, as far as we know, are able to answer such queries by appeal to commonly held conceptual contents. The answers to these questions are topics we, ex we expect to be explicitly available to Smitty upon reflection, inasmuch as he has achieved the status of being a distinctively human agent. The mark of human rationality, our distinctive being able, is this power to take a second-order stance that makes our reasons for actions, uh, and here we include knowing as a kind of acting, explicit. As Robert Brandon puts it, our ability to articulate and bind ourselves to norms because they are norms distinguishes us from, quote, merely natural creatures, end quote. In a way, Brandon definitely would not say it, but I believe in light of the foregoing is entirely at home in his position, the power to concept monger, our ability to think about our thinking is the distinctiveness of the human soul. To possess a human soul, then, is not only to have a tendency towards a certain type, but to, pardon me, to possess a human soul is not only to have a tendency towards a certain flourishing uh, or certain behaviors that constitute our happiness, but to be able to articulate and critically analyze the norms governing those behaviors in a manner which itself contributes to that flourishing. As Aristotle famously argues in Nicomachean Ethics, quote, a human being's function is supposed to be a sort of living, and this living is supposed to be activity of the soul and actions that involve reason, end quote. That is to say, it is integral to human flourishing, or happiness, that we exercise our ability to make the conceptual norms governing our activities, both theoretical and practical, explicit, and to place them under rational scrutiny. By asking with Aristotle, what is the good life for human beings, we are looking for an articulation of natural norms governing human behavior inasmuch as they are ordered to our flourishing. And attempting to achieve this articulation is a central ingredient to what Aristotle sees as that state of flourishing. In short, our ability to take a second-order stance toward the norms governing our behavior, the human soul, distinguishes us from non-human animals, while the exercise of this ability also partly constitutes what is our ultimate happiness. So far, what I have presented is consistent with a polite form of materialism. But hylomorphism, in its full Aristotelian context, in which I have attempted to place it in the foregoing, carries some heavy ontological consequences of an immaterialist strife. Human rationality presupposes an ability to distance oneself from the world in which we are otherwise perfectly at home. We can remove our attention, uh, pardon me, we can remove our attention from direct objects of our activities practical or theoretical, in order to ask whether these manners of acting are normatively up to snuff. This distancing is only possible inasmuch as the concepts humans monger abstract from the particularities of the situations in which we implicitly act out their dictates. The fact that our normative bearing toward our own activities 
requires an abstract conceptual explicitness has the consequence that we must posit a discrete mental state on the part of human beings that we do not need to posit uh, in an account of the cognition of living things in general. In order for Smitty to adopt the normative stance toward his theoretical and practical doings, he must have an explicit grasp of the relevant concepts or norms governing these activities. Whereas there was no need to posit an intentional object of Fluffy's thinking in addition to the rat he is hunting and other relevant items in the vicinity, Smitty's critical normative awareness requires that he be able, pardon me, that he be aware of the relevant concepts as such. For example, Smitty is motivated to make an inference because it is an instance of modus ponens. Smitty must have modus ponens as an object of his attention. In other words, distinctively human thinking is thinking about thinking that puts the status of our thinking up against explicitly held norms and concepts. Human rationality then requires us to posit a special kind of mental content on the part of humans. That is, we have among our intentional objects concepts or norms that are transtemporal and transspatial. The concept of modus ponens, or rule of logic, is identically instantiable across, all, across an infinity of possible physical circumstances. In fact, modus ponens is indifferent to its physical instantiation. Almost anything under the proper interpretation can be an instance of modus ponens. In fact, understanding a logical concept or norm such as modus ponens is to be able to recognize its physically disparate instantiations as instantiations of the same abstract concept. Whatever else physical things are, they are not indifferent to their material situation. And therefore, the objects of conceptual explicitness are not anything physical, even in some broad sense. The objects of our distinctively human thinking are not immaterial, uh, only in the sense that a, a cat's knowing its way around the world is immaterial. That is, there is no discrete material object or event with which it can be identified. Rather, conceptual contents are immaterial in a much stronger sense that they are not occurrences in space or time at all. Smitty's articulation of the conceptual norms grounding his thinking uh, may be an event in space and time, but the intelligible content of that event is not. Its object, what it's thinking about, is not in space and time. The thought expressing this articulation is therefore more than what can be taken as material in any sense. Since the content of thought is abstract, and the thought just is the articulation of the content, likewise the thought is abstract. As Aristotle puts it, quote, that is how it is in the case of understanding. It is intelligible, uh, and it is an intelligible object in just the way its intelligible objects are, since in the case of those things that have no matter, what understands and what is understood are the same, end quote. Aristotle further claims that the activity of this understanding is itself, quote, separable, unaffected, and unmixed, and it alone is immortal and eternal, end quote. Thus, in this sense, we should conclude that the grasping of a concept is not a material power in the same way that the other vital functions of the human organism or all other organisms are material. There is something non-bodily about a human normative, the human normative mode of rationality because it involves conceptual contents indifferent to their material instantiations. That is not to say that we therefore should identify our conceptual articulations with the activities of a disembodied agent or mind or some such, but only that human rationality involves a participation in something that is transcendent of the material world. Aristotle takes the human soul as uniquely separable from matter, but not because he thinks human souls exist as its discrete individuals without matter. Rather, the soul is separable from matter in the sense that its exercise brings the human organism into participation with something that is truly immaterial, in Aristotle's sense, eternal, unchanging, and invariant. Aristotle famously defines the divine nature as an eternal act of self-reflection. It's thinking about thinking. Notice that for Aristotle, that Aristotle defines the exercise of distinctively human rationality and the nature of divinity as self-reflective thought. That is, making explicit uh, the normative grounds of one's thinking. When human beings manage to bring the true normative structure of the universe into explicit conceptual grasp, their active thought brings them into a sort of union with Aristotle's God. Once again, Aristotle takes these transcendent acts of conceptual articulation or contemplation as constitutive human happiness. Though hylomorphism's account of human nature is certainly not a sly form of substance dualism, is, like quite, is likewise quite an impol impolite by any material standards. 
consider this quotation from Aristotle, which is almost unintelligible, but we'll explain it. <laughs> Quote, these bodily parts then are in a way prior to uh, the compound, but in a way not, since they cannot exist when they are separated. For it is not a finger in any, in, in any and every state that is a finger of an animal. Rather, a dead finger is only harmoniously a finger. Some of these parts, however, are simultaneous, namely the ones that are controlling, and in which the account of the substance are first found. For example, the heart, perhaps, or the brain, for it, it makes no difference which of them is of this sort." End quote. Okay. It's very compact and odd, uh, and probably unintelligible, but let's make sense of it. Take your run-of-the-mill uh, body parts, say aerosol examples of finger. As we discussed earlier, for a hylomorphous, the finger is not prior, either temporally or explanatorily, to the organism as a whole, what Aristotle is here calling the compound. Because the finger, as being a finger, depends on the compound for its being. Separate the finger and it begins to disintegrate. And fingers do not uh, antecede the organism to which they belong, at least not under natural conditions. In this passage, however, Aristotle is stopping us from generalizing the claim, uh, that claim to all parts of the organism. He claims that some parts are, he calls it, simultaneous with the organism as a whole because they are controlling and uh, that in which the account and the substance are first found. His examples are the heart or, or the brain. Okay. As far as simultaneous goes, there is some quaint ancient embryology in play here, but I think in principle we can see that Aristotle is not far off the mark. We do not just pop into existence with the full complement of human organ, organs but come online incrementally, as it were. Whatever the first part of the organism is, that part in the organism as a whole came to be simultaneously. So if the liver were the first part of the organism, then the liver and the organism came to be at the same instant. In a sense, the liver would be separable from the rest of the organism, the compound, because it did indeed exist separately from the rest of the organism. Now notice that the special relationship uh, between using my rather silly example, the liver and the soul. At that early point of development, the actualization of the organism was nothing more than the liver. In those circumstances, the being able of that organism would be no more than to be a functioning liver. Uh, in this originary uh, embryonic stage, the organism is a liver uh, with the direct disposition to grow into a more complex living thing. There's a sense then in which we could say at one point in development, the soul was a disposition of the liver if the liver really were the first organ in the order of development. Next, Aristotle starts to lay out some conditions for being parts that are simultaneous with the whole. Uh, the first he mentions is control. That is, some parts play a special role in directing the rest of the organism's activity and development. Aristotle is not committed to the notion that the controlling parts come online literally first in fetal development. His candidates for controlling parts are the heart or the brain. On, this, on his view of embryology, the newly formed organism goes through a vegetative or non-animal or organic stage, then it becomes a non-human animal, and then finally a human stage of development. I take it that the controlling part need only be online at the onset of the development of its distinctive stage of being. And I take it that those controlling parts will be running the show in that organism for its entire lifespan. Aristotle then tells us that the account and substance are first found in these controlling parts. In other words, as soon as the controlling parts are up and running, we have something fitting the definition of this kind of organism. The controlling parts, because they are sufficient markers of the coming to be of the organism, are themselves the places in which the soul is first and primarily located. That is, simultaneous parts are those that most distinctively signify the coming to be of an organism of a certain kind. The occurrence of the organism and the occurrence of such a part of an organism are simultaneous. Because a simultaneous part must be a locale for the, for the disposition of the most distinctive activities of the organism, notice that Aristotle actually thinks that the soul can be spatially located. The soul, as the substance of the organism, is first found in its controlling parts. Those controlling parts maintain their governing role throughout the life of the organism. So it will always be the case that, in some sense, the soul is there with the controlling parts, as long as they have that role. Even if, in another sense, Aristotle thinks that the soul somehow suffuses the body. Think of it this way. A soul is the first actuality of an entire living organism, but it acts as such by initially being the first actuality of the living controlling parts. 
Certainly without the controlling parts, the organism will cease to be an integrated whole, it will die. So there is a sense in which the controlling parts have a, have a role as the primary actuality of the compound of organs for the entire lifespan of the organism. That is, it is because of the controlling parts that the certain organism is an organized unity. Notice that the liver is certainly not a simultaneous or controlling part of any organism. It does not control the whole organism and is not, and is not the location of the distinctive activity of any animal. Uh, many species are relatively similar in their liver function. So that's just a silly example. Aristotle mentions the heart and the brain as possibilities. I think perhaps is a sign that the heart is not his preferred hypothesis. I do not think it matters whether the heart and the brain literally come first in embryonic development, but which marks the coming to be of an organ with a governing power over the organism as a whole in its final, even if yet unrealized stage of development. Given what we know now, the brain is obviously the controlling part of the human organism, or any organism with a brain for that matter. There's a sense in which the living brain, as a controlling part, is the actualization of the organism. That is, to put it uh, maybe a bit too simplistically, there's a sense in which the soul, the, the brain, is the place of the soul more distinctively than any other part of the body. Thus, as neuroscientists become more adept at producing functional images, they are not merely taking pictures of a physical object. Neuroscience is, is a science of the soul. Neuroscientists are rendering images of the human soul, capturing its activities, and yielding insights into our nature and the conditions of our flourishing. That is not to say that the soul in its entirety is something captured in any discrete image, but rather that the neuroscientist is able to render a moment of the soul's development in much the same way a single frame in a film shows us a moment in a narrative. Mere hylomorphism can propose speculative hypotheses for human flourishing based on the conceptual and phenomenological analysis of the soul as a distinctive being able of the human organism, and the neuroscientist can confirm or disconfirm these proposals. Neurohylomorphism is uniquely situated for this partnership with neuroscience, as opposed to other philosophical stances because of its strong affirmative stance towards embodiment. The soul is a definitive disposition of a living organism that can even be located primarily in the central nervous system. And it is equally strong as equally strong non-materialist account of human rationality and ultimate human flourishing. In other words, hylomorphism can provide the clinically-minded neuroscientist with a realistic yet holistic perspective on human nature, which can generate concrete, verifiable research. This exchange between Aristotelian philosophy and neuroscience may then have welcome applications for advances of human flourishing. Um, for instance, the, the treatment of recalcitrant uh, forms of depression uh, in some well-known cases, as uh, both disciplines are ultimately aimed at the full actualization of human being. Thank you.